Amen. I'd invite you to open your copy of the Scripture and join me in John chapter 21. The wise king of Israel said, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. And if you've ever looked down the, the long path of school and beginning a degree as a freshman, and you've got four years, maybe, unless you're like me and it takes five, um, or it's a home project, or it's a trip, you know, <clears throat> getting home and getting back to the routine There's something sweet about it. Well, this morning, we're going to look at John's conclusion to his gospel. He has been leading us to an understanding of who Jesus is over the past 20 chapters. And you might think that given the purpose of his book comes at the end of chapter 20, that John is done. But he's not. Because John has some loose ends he wants to tie up. And this morning we're going to see those things, things like Peter's restoration, John's pointing out the fact that he and Peter are not rivals. There's also the idea that Jesus has prophesied that Peter would die in a manner of a crucifixion. And it does come true decades later. We also see that John shows us in this chapter that Jesus continues to provide for his disciples. He feeds them a breakfast, and he cares for them. And that hints at the mission of the church as we look to the risen Christ. So as we look at this passage, we're going to break it into two halves, as it were. Verses 1 through 14 is Jesus' physical provision He's got a warm, hot meal for the disciples after a busted night of no fish. And then in verses 15 through 25, we have Jesus' spiritual provision as he nourishes not only to Peter's soul in restoring him, but to all the disciples in revealing himself to them once more. And hopefully, as we work through this passage this morning, you will find yourself drawn to this Jesus. I mean, Peter jumped out of a boat to get to him. I don't expect you to do that this morning, but maybe you will hear his voice calling you and you will respond. So let's dig right in. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now that's the Sea of Galilee. Um, It just goes by several names. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, that's the doubting Thomas that we looked at last week in chapter 20. Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. 
The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here we see the disciples spending the night out on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And this horrible night fishing turns into a glorious morning with Jesus. How would you like that for your day? These skilled fishermen, now mind you, James and John, brothers, sons of Zebedee, were fishermen. Peter and Andrew, who very likely may have been one of the other unnamed disciples that were there, were fishermen. This is their home turf, and they can't get a bite. They spend the entire night out on the, on the sea. The other disciples go with them. This week-long feast of Passover is now over, and slowly and quietly, Jesus' disciples have left the city and that upper room where they had locked themselves away in chapter 20, and they had slowly sifted and moved through the crowds and made their way back home. John tells us that there were seven fishing. There's Peter and some would call him Doubting Thomas, but we know from chapter 20 he is now Believing Thomas. There's Nathaniel, who's also described in other Gospels by another pseudonym, Bartholomew. There's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and that one of those being John the author. And there's two others. I think it's probably likely that it was Philip, or who is also from Galilee, and Peter's brother, Andrew. But why are they fishing? If this is the third time that Jesus appeared to them after he rose from the dead, why aren't these guys on cloud nine telling everybody that he is risen? Why are they looking after fish instead of people? Now, there's been a lot of ink spilt on chastising the disciples as disobedient. Some believe that Peter is so distraught in his mind for denying Jesus three times that he is like, I failed as a disciple. There's nothing left for me here. Guys, I'm going back to the family business. If there's one thing I can do, it's catch fish. Wink, wink, right? He spends a night out there. Come on, you guys got to be with me this morning. This is good stuff. So he, as a leader among the disciples, goes home and all these other guys from Galilee are like, okay, we'll go along with you. Some rebuke these disciples as unbelieving, forsaking the mission as they sneak home with heads hung low and they resume common work instead of the mission of making Jesus known. Others speculate that Peter's return home was perhaps due to a family emergency. I mean, he and Andrew had been gone for some time now following Jesus, and perhaps there was a huge tax payment due, or the family business was suffering because of their absence. And so the family is saying, get back here and get to work. 
In either event, the accusation is that Peter wrongly allowed the temporal to surpass the eternal. Now what's interesting about these speculations is that Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel both tell us that the disciples were told to meet Jesus in Galilee. So let's not be too hard on them. They're following instructions. Even though John doesn't mention it in his gospel, we see it in other passages. And as they wait on Jesus, hey, why not fish? It's what they do. But that night they caught nothing. And when fishing is your livelihood, you know that saying, a bad day fishing is better than a good day at work? If you're a fisherman, that doesn't apply. A bad day of fishing is a bad day at work. But then Jesus shows up and everything changes. We see that in verses 4 through 14. He provides the catch. He doesn't rebuke them for fishing. Notice that. He doesn't say, what are you guys doing? I told you to be here and you're out goofing off. You should have been going around the city of Galilee and Capernaum, the the region of Galilee, and, and sharing stories about me and calling people to trust in me. He doesn't rebuke them for fishing. Instead, he lovingly calls them children. Do you have any fish? And then he directs them to where the fish are. And we see that the net was so heavy, they couldn't haul it into the boat. They attach it to the side of the boat and they make their way across the the waters and to the shore. This large catch can only mean one thing to the Apostle John, and it's that Jesus is there. And as soon as he says to Peter, it is the Lord, Peter is like, I'm getting dressed to go meet my king. He'd been stripped to work in the boat, and he puts on his outer garments, and he clothes himself, and he dives into the water, and he he puts Michael Phelps to shame and swims to the shore before the boat can get there. We shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, we just saw in the last chapter that Peter and John react here as they do according to their character. For John, it's a call to faith. For Peter, it's a call to action. You remember in chapter 20 when they were told that the tomb was empty and they both raced to get there. John gets there first and he stands outside, looks in the empty tomb, and what does he say? But that he believed Peter, however, when he gets there, even though he's out of breath, he rushes right in and he looks around. And here in a similar response, John sees that it's Jesus and he's got to tell Peter. And when Peter hears this, he's got to go into action. He swims to shore, and then as the whole party gathers on that beach, we see in verses 11 through 14 that Jesus has provided a meal for them. He didn't need them to catch the 153 fish to have breakfast that morning. He'd already had it all prepared. And don't miss this important detail. We read that no one dared ask him, who are you? They all knew that it was Jesus. We're starting off, and as he's speaking to them, as they're out on the water, they don't recognize him. They don't know who it is. But once they get close, there is No mistake, this is Jesus. John tells us that this took place a third time after Jesus had risen, that he had revealed himself to the disciples. Which means that 
Jesus has already commissioned them, as we saw in chapter 20 and verse 21. So we do have to wrestle with the fishing for fish and not for souls. And I think what John is doing here is if he's drawing from the other gospel writers like Matthew and Luke who had recorded Jesus saying things to the disciples like this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so the fish becomes a symbol, fishing becomes a symbol for the mission of catching and making disciples of Jesus. If you've ever followed a car, maybe on the way to church, at 25 miles an hour, I'm not going to look at anybody, and there's a little fish emblem on the back, and you want to do at least 35, maybe 50, and you're like, oh, I can't be annoyed with them because of that fish, right? That means something. They must be Christians. You see, that symbol has so attached itself to Christianity, it still carries some significance thousands of years later. And so here is this idea that fishing has become a metaphor, as it were, for making disciples. And we are called to appeal to the the appetites of the lost people with the gospel and show them and tell them that Jesus is a better way to live. He alone can solve the problem that you're wrestling with. And it's not to say that life is going to get easy. And we'll see that here in just a few minutes. But it is to say that your relationship with Jesus can be reconciled. He will make you reconciled with his Father. What's the significance of all this? Let's think about some application here from these first 14 verses. Jesus has a fire going, and he's got food prepared for them. What's the point that John is trying to make? Well, I think in a real way, he is trying to show us his reader, that Jesus never ceases to care for his disciples. I mean, he gave them 153 large fish. So whether they were this big this day and next week they were that big, I don't know. But John's a fisherman and he knows they're large and the net should have broken and it didn't and he knows exactly how many are there, 153. It's a significant haul. And so here's Jesus providing and caring for his people. And I think what John wants his reader to understand is that you and I need to learn that same lesson over and over and over again that we can depend on Jesus. He will meet our needs. And I wonder if there might be some way in which God has directed the church to express their need to Him, to somehow verbalize their dependence on Him. I wonder if there may be some mechanism that God has given us that would allow us to tell Him that we depend on Him. If you're following with me, it might be the word prayer. Prayer is an expression It's a confession. Lord, we have no power to change this situation. This is beyond our ability. And so we come to you, the one who is all-powerful, 
and we confess our dependence on you, and we plead that your will would be done in these circumstances. Oh, yes, Lord, we have opinions and we have desires, but we lay it all before you, and we say your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. It also looks like this. Our dependence on Christ means that we die to ourselves, that we're not trusting in ourselves. We're, we are committing ourselves to His will and care. And so Christian, so church, so South Canyon, brothers and sisters who are here this morning, do we pray? Are our prayers a demonstration of just empty religious act? Okay, so we, we're having a meal, and so, Lord, thank you for this food. Bless it to our bodies. Is it that I've got to pray through this prayer list in order to be a good Christian? Is it just the, hey, uh, I'm just going to throw some things up there hoping one of them will stick? Or maybe it's a little bit more intentional. It's like, I've got demands, and you know what? In Christ, you have to answer me. You have to give me the stuff that I want. And so I keep praying for a better job. I keep praying for a better relationship. I keep telling you the things that I want. Friend, brethren, let's hear it's here that in this story, the disciples need Jesus. He demonstrates his care for them. Therefore, he has proven himself trustworthy time and time again. And I hope that we as a church will sincerely see the value of praying to God as a means of seeing him work in us and in this church and in the nations. We gather on the first and the third Sundays every Sunday evening to pray together as a church. And I, and I realize that not everybody can come back and make it because of work or schedules, but we have an opportunity to gather and to confess corporately, Lord, we need you. We need you to do what only you can do so that our faith in you will continue to grow and you will get all the glory. Today over lunch, you might wrestle with the question, why did John tell us that these fish were all large, and in fact, that there were 153 of them? Was it just the affections and the interest of a fisherman coming out? He just couldn't help himself? I mean, this is marvelous. There's a lot of value in this fish. Well, I think, tying into that metaphor of fishing for souls as a, as a means of evangelism and disciple-making, I think John is tapping into that, and he's making this point, that in the weakness of our efforts to share the gospel with a family member, a co-worker, or a neighbor, that God has the power to do above and beyond all that we could ask or think. God gave such a bountiful and valuable harvest with fish in order to encourage his followers that when you do the real fishing, the fishing for souls, be assured that the gospel will bear much fruit. And the net that you're worried about breaking, that the church who will receive these new souls will not be ruined by that overwhelming harvest that they can't handle. They will be able to care for these new Christians. 
What does Paul say in Philippians? But my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, we depend on Jesus. Now, maybe you've gotten away from that, and that's understandable because of our human frailty. I do it too. I trust my own schedule. I lay it all out. I work hard. I do these things, and everything should work because 2 plus 2 does equal 4, except when 2 plus 2 equals 1,000. And then, then we say, Lord, we need you. Every time we share in the Lord's table, like we're going to do here in a couple minutes, it is a reminder to ourselves not only of what Jesus did, but why he did it. Because we needed one who was more righteous than ourselves. We needed one who would make three promises to us in his death. I will atone for all your sins as we saw in chapter 19. Then as we saw in chapter 20 of John, that his resurrection becomes the foundation for his promise to give eternal life to all who trust in him. And the third eternal truth is that Jesus is coming again. He mentions it here. We haven't gotten there yet. But he says, I'm going to return. What's it to you that John does something else between now and when I return? You see, the good shepherd cares for his sheep. And so as we observe this table, as we drink and we eat, we do so in remembrance that God has made promises to us that are fulfilled in Jesus. We depend on Him. These very disciples, who just a few days earlier shared the Lord's table, are now better understanding that Jesus gave His life, that He shed His blood, that He cleansed them from their sin, and that He will nourish them with eternal life. The bread and the cup took on much greater significance for these disciples now that they have seen Jesus again and again. And you think about this. What does this show us about our God? Friends, our God is not like the God of Islam, who is all law, no grace, who is not loving, no word is ever spoken of him in the Quran about him being a loving God. But we see here a God who is full of grace and mercy as we've sung this morning, who knows that all we truly need is Christ and who lovingly draws people to himself and that this kingdom that's coming that Jesus has inaugurated with his death and resurrection is a kingdom that he invites all to participate in, all who would trust in Christ for the atonement of their sins. He rose from the dead in order to give us this eternal life. And I just say, will you run to this Jesus and ask Him to save you? Will you, like Peter, cast aside all pretense and jump into the waters And swim to shore because of your earnestness to get to Jesus. Well, in the first 14 verses, John not only wants us to see that Peter's heart was primed for what follows, but he also wants us to see that it is important for all who believe in Jesus to know that he loves and cares for sinners. 
and in fact invites us to dine with him. Let's pick up in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He, being Peter, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned. He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against Jesus during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who bears is bearing witness about these things and who has written about these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So as we look at this second half of John chapter 21 we see Jesus spiritual provision it's the it's the result of his work on the cross uh, he's giving eternal life, and that comes in the form of restoration and a recommissioning. Now, what's interesting to me is if you look at all four Gospels and you compare them to one another, all four tell us about Peter's failures, that he would deny Jesus three times. But only John records Peter's restoration. Why is that? Well, perhaps John is wanting to set the record straight and he's defending Peter's apostolic ministry. Maybe he's trying to dispel the myth that he and Peter were rivals. Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved, becomes the the unnamed moniker for John, whereas Peter is somewhat impetuous. It's very likely that John wrote his gospel after Peter had been martyred. And this account then will highlight not only that Peter died in the manner that Jesus said he would, being taken where he did not go, and history tells us that Peter was martyred by crucifixion, and so that he wouldn't die in the same manner of his Lord that he was not worthy to, he asked to be crucified upside down. So John is setting the stage 
not only that he and Peter are not rivals, but they're peers, not only that God restored Peter to ministry, not only that Jesus' prophetic word about the manner in which John would die has come to pass, but he's also making an argument that as this brother was an example of martyrdom, any and all Christians who suffer for the faith can look to him as an example. But I think John has something more in mind than this. You remember what Peter done? He denied Jesus three times. And who is John writing to? But we believe it is writing to Jewish people who were driven out of Judea and that area from the Roman occupation and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And they are scattered around the Roman Empire and he is writing to them in their individual communities. And this letter is circulating and he is saying, you too who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah can see His mercy towards you as displayed in Peter. If God would forgive Peter, one of the closest disciples to Jesus, one of the inner three of His betrayal, then God will forgive you of your betrayal. He will forgive you of your denial. If, if you set yourself to confess it and seek Him, So how does one receive this eternal life? Well, there's five thoughts that I want to give you before we shut things down this morning. And there we see them through the rest of this passage. You see, God cannot forgive your sin if your sin is not addressed. Unlike what you may see and hear, God's love towards you is not just a warm blanket that's just waiting for you to kind of wrap yourself up in it, and it's not just an automatic thing. Well, yeah, why wouldn't God love me? I mean, I'm great. Everybody should love me. They should just think of how wonderful it is to know me. This is not the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is that God loves His enemies And when they confess and they repent from their sin, God then expresses His love to them. That's when the relationship... So let's let's just... Let me stick with my notes here, okay? First, our sin must be addressed. How is it that we could have this eternal life? How is it that any of us could be restored to the one that we have sinned against and rejected and run from? Our sin must be addressed. Looking at verses 15 through 17, we have Peter's three denials, and Jesus is going to draw each and every one of them like a leech in the old days of medicine. He's going to draw the poison out of Peter's heart by three times asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Now, God didn't need, Jesus didn't need to do that because he didn't know for sure. He knew Peter loved him. He knew that in a moment of weakness and self-preservation, that Peter took the easy way out, that Peter was afraid. Yes, Peter did deny Jesus, but the poison that Jesus is removing is from Peter's heart, not his own. And so he's, Peter, you denied me, so I'm going to ask you, do you love me? Peter, you denied me two times, so I'm going to ask you twice, do you love me? Peter, you denied me three times, so I'm going to ask you three times, Peter, because I want you to know every time I'm asking you, I'm pulling the poison out. I love you, Peter, and I know you love me, but you need to feel this. It needs to settle in your bones. You need to be convinced of this, that Jesus indeed paid it all. 
atoned for all your sins on that cross. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is by no coincidence. Those three denials are being addressed by Jesus' three questions. And Jesus is leading Peter to see his sin and find in Jesus unending love and unending grace. He's drawing Peter back to himself. But it's not just for Peter's sake that Jesus does it this way. It's for ours as well. As I've said already, we too have denied Jesus. And so in Peter we have a type. We have an example of what Jesus is doing. He's challenging all who have rejected him to renounce their sin and be reconciled. And Peter must never have forgotten this. Because the first sermon he preaches in Acts chapter 2, when people also are crying out, well, what then should we do? We've crucified the one that God sent, and he is the Messiah. We missed it. What should we do then? What does Peter respond in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 and 38? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. The starting point of any relationship with Jesus begins with His presence, which causes us to grieve over our sin. We have to own it, whatever the cost. Jesus basically reiterates the Shema of Israel, I think, here in verses 15 through 17. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see, loving the Lord with everything we have is our highest priority. And in verse 21, Jesus applies this to Peter. And then he says to Peter, stop comparing yourself to John. Stop worrying about him. And so when we are singularly focused on Christ, it does free us from a comparison or a contrast or a worrying about the others around us. It, we are being drawn to Him. And we see that this is equally available to all Christians. Here's a second thing we see. Not only must we uh, confess our sins, but we must accept our calling The mission that God has for us, we see that over and over, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And each time it's followed by, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He wants Peter to know, you have not lost my grace. Indeed, it is sufficient for your need. And so, Peter, nothing's changed. You have work to do. I need you to be a shepherd to my people. I need you to preach the gospel. I need you to love people. I need you to walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death. I need you to be there with the truth. And I need you to be an evangelist. I need you to be a shepherd to my sheep. You see, Jesus is concerned for Peter and for the church. The church that he's bought with his own blood. The church that is going to share in the table with him as a testimony that we have been redeemed by him. Following Christ isn't just a matter of renouncing your sin and then me and Jesus are good. It is also a personal relationship that goes and grows. You see, your conversion may be private, individually, 
Jesus finds you in your room. He finds you on the field. He finds you at your work. He finds you in your bed. He finds you this morning here. And he may be wooing you to himself. And that is an individual calling. But you never live out that calling privately. It's always done in a community. It's always done corporately. There are no secret Christians. We are called to live out our faith in this local gathering of blood-bought people who are guarding, caring, loving, and serving one another. We need to accept this mission that we've been saved to serve Christ and to take the gospel. But we also see that our cross must be carried. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus tells Peter, here's your future, son. You and I are restored and reconciled. I've accomplished that through the cross. And I want you to hear it, Peter. I want you to feel it. I love you. And things are going to be okay. But Peter, I'm going to give you a glimpse into your future. And it's not going to be a pleasant one. After serving me for many days and many years, after caring for the sheep, you're going to have your life taken from us. And so what we see here is that whoever serves Christ must not be merely willing to lay down our lives, but we must actually give up our lives. There's a big difference. In other words, we are being called to be spent and to spend for the kingdom. There's an onus on us not to just be bystanders or to be spectators or to just look in on from the fringes and see a few people running around trying to bail water out of the boat or to get into the work and to be used by God. To mortify the sin in our own life. To die to self. To put others before ourselves. To share the gospel. To spend our evenings and weekends serving in this community, attending Bible studies, growing, gathering around God's Word. But it doesn't just stop there that there's a cross we must carry, as Peter would carry his cross. But you look at verses 20 through 22, and Peter, having been restored, is much more concerned about John than he is about himself at this point. And God wants him to understand that there is a gospel partnership here that must be maintained. Jesus rebukes him. Peter, stop worrying about John. What's that got to do with you? Follow me. We may often do the same thing with other Christians. We may compare ourselves. We may question their fitness to lead or to serve in a capacity. We may be jealous of somebody else's gifting Jesus' point to Peter is that you and John are going to have different ministries, Peter. I like what one commentator says. Peter would be the shepherd, John the seer. Peter the preacher, John the penman. Peter the foundational witness, John the faithful writer. Peter would die in the agony and passion of martyrdom. John would live on to great age and pass away in quiet serenity. That may be the reality. But here's the other side of that reality. If we are serving Christ, then we ought to appreciate the diversity of Christ's work, which is why we pray for other churches. We're not the only people of God in this community. 
Praise God for that, right? There are many other faithful gospel-preaching churches here, and we pray for them in the hills and around the world. It's why we can even partner with other gospel churches with whom we share these convictions, even if we may have different instincts about how to uh, uh, play those out and follow through on those. We see a fifth and final observation. How is it that we can experience this forgiveness that Jesus speaks of? First, our sin has to be addressed. Second, we have to fulfill our calling. It leads, our sin being addressed leads us to fulfilling the calling. It leads us to a partnership in the gospel. It leads us to a secure future in Christ. Look at verses 23, 22 and 23. Jesus hints at the outcome of our faith. What does he say? Peter said to him, If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so this saying has spread around among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say that. He said, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This idea of Jesus coming, his return, This is the ultimate outworking of the salvation of our souls. It's the hope of heaven. It's this eternity with Christ. We are free from sin and sorrow. We're invited to enter God's kingdom. And Jesus mentions his return. The kingdom has come in part. We see and respond to the gospel with faith and belief. We have eternal life. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness. We have been transferred into the kingdom of light. But even more, there's a day coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And Jesus himself will appear in all his glory. And he will draw us to him. And then he's going to return to complete his work. His first coming was to bring the gospel message of salvation. His second coming will be to judge all those who heard and hear and yet do not believe. And then he will bring about the full completion of his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. John's bearing witness to these things. He tells us in verse 24 and 25. I'm sharing these things with you in order that you might experience such sweet with God. He could go on and on about the surpassing excellencies of Christ, but there is no end to that story. Not even eternity will have enough time. The evangelist closes his gospel with this beautiful story of restoration. This, this sweetness of fellowship with God is such a great assurance of real repentance and forgiveness. And it's our prayer that you, too, would experience that. You see, what we've done here this morning isn't just a play. It's not acting out parts. It is a rehearsal of this timeless truth that there is a holy God whom we in our sin have rebelled against. And apart from Christ, we are under wrath. It is only by casting ourselves on the mercy of God and trusting that Jesus' righteousness has indeed put an end to all of sin and all of the wrath against sin and all the future judgment against sin. And we hide ourselves in Jesus. Will you respond with faith? 
If you are not in Christ, is this the moment that He is drawing you to Himself? And for us, church, who know and love our Savior, may the sweetness of our fellowship with Him give us confidence to depend on Him and to trust in the forgiveness and the restoration that He's accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would strengthen Your church. Enable us to fulfill our mission and rejoice in our future with You. And we pray that Your Spirit would draw all those here who don't know Christ into the joy of knowing Jesus. And we ask this, Lord, with confidence that it is Your will to bring a harvest, to to bring in a net full of many fish. Help us to be faithful, and we will give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we conclude, I, I want to say a couple things. First, if you have questions about what we've just walked through, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service this morning. You could also look on the back of your bulletin. Uh, you've seen some of our elders here. Jeremy led us in a pastoral prayer. Joel's leading in music. We've got several other elders scattered around here. If you see those faces and you match them to somebody, walk up to them and ask them some questions about it. If you came with a friend from South Canyon, talk to them about what we've talked about. This is the the most important thing we could ever share is how to have a relationship with Jesus, one that's born in real repentance. And we are also going to share in communion. So as the men come this morning, we've I've already talked a lot about communion, what it teaches us and reminds us of Jesus' atoning work and the eternal life that's promised in His resurrection and the fact that He's coming again. And so as we share in this table, this is an opportunity for those who are indeed born again, those who, like Peter, have dove into the waters of grace and have arrived on the shore in Jesus' presence. This is for us as a memorial, as a reminder. So if, if you haven't reconciled yourself with God through Christ, we just ask as these things are being passed out, you just let them go by and consider what it is to see a church gather together to remember something as significant as this. And so as we eat of the bread, we are doing so knowing that the bread symbolizes the broken body of Christ And as we drink of the cup, we do so in understanding that it symbolizes the blood that Christ spilt for us. And so as the men come, we are going to pass out these elements. I want to give you a moment to just kind of slow down and process all that we've talked about. And then we will pray and we will share in the Lord's table together. Lord God, we know that in Christ is righteousness, in us is sin. And we are not beating ourselves up over this. This is is what the, the writer says, that we are born for trouble just like sparks fly upward. It's our nature. And yet we have a great and glorious God who has atoned for those 
through his own means and through his own son. And so we celebrate today that great and glorious gift of Jesus, whose name is above every name and whose grace and mercy are to be treasured above gold and silver. We want to confess our need for ongoing dependence of you, Lord, and so we pray that you would wash us yet again with your word and your spirit, that you would cleanse our hearts, free us from every sin and every evil, every temptation, every doubt, every fear and anxiety. And we pray and know that as we trust in Christ and walk in Christ, that his atonement once and for all has put away our sin, and yet we need to draw near to you yet again and trust and verbalize our faith in the finished work of Christ. And that's what we do this morning. And so we give you praise for that. And we ask that you would strengthen your church and that you would bring many more into it. In Jesus' name, amen.